Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. In it, Paul gets very personal about his own shortcomings, and he comforts the believers in Corinth. But he also teaches us that by embracing our own weakness, we are able to experience God's strength. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as we continue our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. And would you stand with me, if you're, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word, just a way for us to honor the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow... He has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. But to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. You may be seated. As we've been saying, probably for the last year or so, as we've gone through 1 Corinthians and now we're into 2 Corinthians, you know, the church in Corinth was rather messy at times. There were, at times, major sin issues happening, not just in the culture, but it's influenced the church. And this is normal, right? This isn't like, oh my gosh, there's sin, in, you know, like this is normal. Why? Because we talk, we're talking about people and people are messy. We are messy. And so this morning... I just want to give us the, the, the okay to acknowledge that we are messy, but we don't just want to stay in our mess, okay? That's the call. Like, we don't want to just stay there. We should all desire for God to constantly be changing us into the image of his son, Jesus. Amen? That word for that is sanctification. <laughs> sanctification is not what you do in your life for yourself. Sanctification is not, you know, being a better person and trying a little harder. No, sanctification is a work that God does by his Holy Spirit in us and for us. And sometimes sanctification is a slow process. Slow in our lives, but if you're married here this morning, sometimes slower in the lives of people around us. You're like, this is getting awkward. <laughs> not going to name names. No, um. So we're not denying that we're messy, right? We're not denying that we're sinful, we're broken people. The believers in Corinth were not perfect. They had their problems. There was days that they desired sin over the Savior. And so too, we too, like, have similar struggles. So I just wanted to get that on the table for us this morning, that we are messy. We're, we're sinful. We struggle. We make mistakes. But it doesn't just stop there. We, as the church, should be a place where we freely acknowledge our struggles, confess our sin, and repent and seek and experience forgiveness and healing. Amen? 
Now, there's two questions that I want to start with this morning before we get into our text. The first question, if you're taking notes, is this. How do you respond when somebody wrongs you? How do you respond when somebody wrongs you? If you're, if you're anything like me, you start out by feeling angry, right? Like, I can't believe that they would do that to me. Like, I can't believe they would treat me like that. But then as time goes on, you move a little bit closer to sadness. And it starts affecting you. And no longer is it anger, it's just hurt. Like, why would they do that to me? Many people, not me, many people hold grudges. I know nothing about that, right? No, I do. They, they allow grudges to turn into bitterness. And if we're honest, most of us, we're good at hiding bitterness, right? Pretending that it's not there. Why do we do that? Because we don't want to let on that someone hurt us in that kind of way. Some of us respond to this hurt with self-righteousness. So we look at the other party, the offending party, and we say, well, I would never do that. Like, I can't believe they would do something like that. We become judgmental and maybe even condemning towards those who have sinned. So how do we respond when somebody wrongs us? The other question I just want us to ponder as we listen to the text this morning is how do we respond when we wrong somebody else? How do we respond? Do we start making excuses for our sin? Right? Do we, do we start making, well, I only did this because you did that to me. Do we start like justifying ourselves saying, well, I only do this because it's how I grew up, right? My parents raised me this way. And listen, the excuses that we might make, they might actually be legit reasons, but oftentimes they're just an attempt to remove responsibility off ourselves and to put it on someone else, to shift the blame. And most, if not all of us, we do this. We, ex we end up excusing the wrongs that we do in life instead of confessing those things. And so whether you feel overwhelmed when somebody hurts you and sins against you, or maybe you're one who tries to always justify why you do what you do, I believe that this passage that Paul writes gives us a better way a better way. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is telling the church in Corinth about a particular situation that has happened. Someone was in sin, probably a, ma no, no doubt, a major sin, it's, and it started not just to affect Paul, but the whole church. Some theologians believe that the situation that Paul is referencing is the reason why he left the church earlier that he left Corinth because someone did something very hurtful to him, maybe undermined his leadership, and it created problems in the church. Other theologians, and I would agree to this, um, and I hold this loosely, is that, if the, that the person that Paul is talking to, or talking about, referencing, is the same person that we read about and learn about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, if you were here for our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it was my first um, sermon as a senior pastor here. And what you have is Paul calling out a guy in the church for sleeping with his stepmom. That was my first sermon as senior pastor. <laughs> like, welcome. Like, this guy, man, this guy was just, he's just, he's boastful about it. He's arrogant about it. He thinks he's got riz, right? But really, he's just dis a disgrace to the grace of God. He took the grace of God and used it as a license to continue in his sin. And the church did nothing about it. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read it, just a portion, what Paul wrote. He says, it is actually reported 
that there's immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. And so Paul is, is telling the church in Corinth, you guys need to deal with sin seriously. This, this guy, he's not repentant. He needs to be removed from the fellowship. Why? All in hopes that he would see his sin for what it is and turn back to Jesus. Amen? That's the goal. Now, being removed from a church in that context would have been, had a much larger impact on your life than today. Okay, if, if someone, if one of you, maybe you've left a church before and just found a new church, or, or maybe you've been removed from a church, um, we could instantly find a different church to go to next weekend, right? There's so many churches around here. They wouldn't deal with our sin issues, right? They would just say, come on in. But back then, there were very few Christians in Corinth. And as far as we know, this might have been the only church in Corinth. And so if you're removed from the church, it's almost like you've been removed from the family, so that's what's going on here. That's the ramifications. That's what we kind of know about this scripture. Um, we don't know exact context, but there's something like that going on, right? There's been major sin and major consequences for the sin, the unrepentant sin, I should say. And that leads us what, um, to the first thing that we're going to learn this morning from our passage, and that is how are we to deal with sin? So if you're taking notes, there's three things under this header that I want to point out about how we're supposed to deal with sin. And number one is that we need to take sin seriously. You know, the Bible describes sin in a lot of different ways. Sin, according to the Bible, is doing something wrong. The Bi according to the Bible, sin is also not doing something right. That's right. Sin is disobedience. Sin is idolatry. It's serving and worshiping something other than God. Sin is rebellion towards God. It's fighting against his will for your life, right? I'm going to do this my own way. Sin is self-centeredness, living your life with you at the, the source and the center, oftentimes at the expense of others. So seeing sin in these various ways helps us to understand that sin is something that we do against others. It's something that we do against ourselves, but ultimately, it's something that we do against God. You see, your sin and my sin harm us because it pulls us further and further away from the Lord. Someone once said, and I, and I liked it, that sin is not bad because it's forgiven, forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad, right? God's not some killjoy, right? God's, God, God's not saying, oh, you really like that? Nope, sin, <laughs> no. No, sin is, is destructive. Sin will destroy your life, okay? And that's why it's forbidden. Sin doesn't just affect you, though. Sin also harms those around us, whether directly or indirectly. It's been said that sin has long-reaching arms. You ever heard that? Sin has long-reaching arms, so it affects those around us. But ultimately, sin is a personal offense against God. Because when we sin, we ultimately choose ourselves over God. You know, you think of a very popular story in Scripture. I'm sure you know about it, but maybe if you don't, let me just tell it to you. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. King David was the greatest king in Israel's history. He, his army was off fighting a war, which is where David should have been with his men. But he chose the comforts of the palace instead of being at war with his, with his army. 
And so one night in his palace, he goes to the rooftop garden, if you will, and is just having a nice casual evening. And he, he looks, over, looks over the kingdom and he sees this beautiful woman. She's bathing and he's just like, wow, like who is she? Like what's her story? And uh, he finds out, oh, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. Now, Uriah, he wasn't home at the time. Why? Because he was out at battle. He was fighting David's battle for him where David should have been. And so David, knowing that Uriah was gone, decided to ask Bathsheba back to the palace. Like, why don't you just come for dinner? Well, we know one thing leads to another. They ended up having relations, and then he gets her pregnant, right? And David knows, like, I'm about to enter a PR nightmare, like, this is not good for my reputation. And so David, what does he do? He seeks to cover it up. He brings Uriah back from battle, right? He says, hey, Uriah, you've been, you've been working really hard. Why don't you go home and like sleep with your wife? And Uriah, just being the honorable guy that he is, he's like, no, what? I can't do that when my men are out there. So what does David do? Let's get him drunk. <laughs> like, you know, what else? Like, well, this guy is a man after God's own heart. This is crazy, right? And that didn't work either. So then what does David do? He says, all right, Joab, Joab's David's commanding officer, right? Joab, this has been a new plan. I got to cover up my sin. And so he says, hey, send Uriah, let him lead out to the, to the battle lines, right? And then when you get up there and the battle kind of gets intense, pull back everyone, the whole army, except for, except for Uriah. And Joab goes along with the plan. Uriah gets killed. David marries Bathsheba. PR nightmare averted. Crisis averted until one day. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David to tell David a story about something that was happening in David's kingdom. He says, David, there's two men that in the city, one has a lot of money, the other one is really poor. One has a lot of livestock, flocks of sheep, the other one only has a lamb. And it's a precious lamb. It's like his child. They eat and drink from the same table. And while one day a traveler was coming to stay with this rich man. And the rich man was like, i got to be hospitable, right? I've got to make a feast and a banquet and all of these things. And so instead of pulling from his own flock, he goes out and he grabs this one guy's lamb. And he slaughters it, right? And he, and he kills it instead of using his own. And so David, he's hearing this story. Nathan's telling him this story. And this is kind of just this, about this crazy thing that happened, right? And David's response is this in 2 Samuel 12. He says, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and has no compassion. So David, he hears this story and he's angry, like he just wants justice. He's about to just declare judgment upon this person who took advantage of the poor man. And so for us, like we're, we read that in 2 Samuel, we're listening to it this morning and we can see the hypocrisy in his response, right? Like how can he be so angry at the rich man without realizing that he did something significantly worse? But if we're honest, how many of us can be like David here? Maybe in smaller ways, maybe we're not killing guys and sleeping with their wives or whatever, you know, but maybe smaller ways. And the only reason we feel angry about somebody else's sin and not our own is because we excuse our sin and we think that we're the exception. So Nathan sees David's anger here. David's mad and Nathan, he sees it and he says, man, this is a great way to talk about something else, <laughs> 
Second Samuel chapter 12, Nathan then said to David, you are that man. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? David was guilty. He was the guilty man. David knew it. David was cut to the heart about it. He realized that if he's going to be mad at anyone, it was him that needed to, he needed to be mad at. He saw the weight of his sin, and he knew that he had no excuses, that David's sin was a direct offense against God. It's also, it was a direct offense against Bathsheba and Uriah, right? He got Bathsheba pregnant, Uriah killed. But then you think about everybody else who was affected by David's sin. You ever thought about that? What about like Uriah and Bathsheba's families? Maybe they had nieces and nephews, their mom and dad. They were affected by David's sin. Their neighbors. Think about Joab. Joab, the commanding officer. Feels like probably he has blood on his hands. Do you think of the army that watched it happen? They're the ones who pulled back. You think David's sin didn't affect them? David's sin affected a lot of people. And listen, that's because, again, sin has long-reaching arms. Look at verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 with me one, one more time. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order to not say too much to all of you. So that's why Paul is saying in, in, in 2 Corinthians 2 that what we read, the person wronged me, right? But they actually caused a lot of pain to everyone else. Listen, if we think, if you think this morning that your sin will only affect you, you're mistaken. David's sin did affect him in negative ways. It totally did. And, but we saw the clear progression of his sin. One sin led to another sin. He had to lie to cover it up. He hid his sin. He was deceptive. Then he murdered to, to, to cover it all up. But the weight of his sin hit him most deeply when he realized that his sin was a primary offense towards God. That's when it really cut him to the deep. And we know that because he journals about it in Psalm 51. Let me, let me read to you what he says. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight. So he's talking to the Lord and he's saying, I have sinned against you first and foremost. My sin was against you. And as much church, as much as sin harms us, as much as your sin harms others, it hurts the heart of God. Sin is a big deal Sin is an offense, and this is why we need to take sin seriously. So let me just ask you this morning, are there sins in our lives that we're excusing? Are there sins that we're trying to hide? Are there sins that we're trying to convince ourselves it's not that bad? The Bible calls us over and over again to take sin seriously because sin separates us. It puts a wedge between us and God. And Nathan the prophet knew that David's sin was a big deal. And Nathan, and thank God that Nathan was obedient to go to David to say something. And can I just say this? When I talk about sin, I, I really want to make it very clear that I'm talking about unrepentant sin. Because we all have sin. We all have struggles, Right? but I'm talking about unrepentant sin. And so we need to take our sin seriously, but we also need to take the sin of other people seriously. So when somebody sins against you, maybe a believer, or when you become aware of somebody's sin, because that's what we do, we sin, right? How are you and I supposed to respond to that? 
So that leads us to the second thing we're going to look at this morning is how do we deal with sin? We take it serious, but we need to follow the process. Now, I want to take a few minutes to talk about church discipline. <laughs> Everyone's favorite topic. I know, okay? <laughs> you're like, sweet, church discipline today. If you never heard that term, you're like, what is church discipline? Uh, church discipline is just a process of dealing with members of the church who are in unrepentant sin. And even though Paul here doesn't walk us through the exact process, we do have instructions on how Jesus, uh, from Jesus himself in Matthew 18. Let me read it to you this morning. It says, if your brother sins, this is Jesus, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now the process that Jesus lays out here has three steps before removal. Are you ready for this? Private, plural, public. I didn't create that. That's way too smart for me. I'm like, wow, three Ps. I read it in the commentary this week. I'm like, that's easy to remember. What's the process Jesus lays out? Private, plural, and public. Jesus doesn't say, hey, go, go and start talking about other people's sin, right? No, he says, go to directly to that person privately, right? You have a responsibility. Someone sins against you. You don't rush to Pastor Kevin's office, right? And say, Pastor Kevin, did you know what they did to me? Can you deal with it? No, you don't do that. The Bible says, Jesus, Jesus says, go to them privately on your own. Or maybe they didn't offend you, but maybe you witnessed something and you heard about something. You don't go gossip. You don't just start inquiring more information from others. You go to them out of love right? This is our responsibility as the church. Now, I want you to know that Jesus, he doesn't lay out a timetable for this, okay? Some, and this might be, maybe you go multiple times to the same person. I don't know. Like, and I think that's just where we, the Bible's kind of gray, where we just have to discern from the Holy Spirit. Like, how many times do we go to that person? Like, oh, I went one time and that's it. Maybe the Lord wants you to go one more time. I don't know. That's just what we have to discern from the Lord. But if they refuse to listen to you privately, Jesus says, then you bring in some other people and now it becomes plural. You bring other people into the conversation. Ideally, people that this person knows, um, know, that knows them and loves them. And you go together and say, hey, we love you, right? We love you. We see this error in your life. We're asking you and we're inviting you to walk in repentance and experience forgiveness. Like, come back to Jesus, right? This is in humility. This is not to gang up on the person. It's so that they would turn from their ways and walk closely with Jesus. Now, Jesus says, if they refuse to listen to multiple people, and maybe, again, you do that multiple times, then it goes public. And Jesus says, you bring it to the church. And in our context, again, in our church, we consider that point where you would call one of the pastors, and we would talk through it as a pastoral team and maybe bring our elders into the situation, and then we would do the same thing. We would walk through this together. We would go with you to that person we, and we would plead with them out of love that they would turn from their sin and turn towards Jesus. Again, this is not to shame them. This is not to bring humiliation upon them. This is all for healing and restoration. Now, if the person 
You've you've walked through that process. It's still unwilling to repent of their sin. It's been brought to the church. Jesus says then, you need to treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile. In other words, you treat them like an unbeliever. You You remove them from the church and treat them as if they're not saved. But again, this is all in context of relationships and it's all about reconciliation. And even though Jesus gives us instructions, he gives us the process to follow, there are times when we, as individuals especially, will like operate poorly. Why? Because we're flawed people ourselves, right? We're sinful people ourselves. And so Jesus gives us this process on how to deal with someone's sin. But the third thing that we need when dealing with sin is we need to maintain a heart of love. In Matthew 18, Jesus makes it clear that when we confront sin, our heart needs to be that that person in sin would be restored through repentance. Amen? So when we, before we start pointing out people's sin all around us, we need to ask ourselves, why are we doing this, right? Is this for the good of, uh, in their lives? Are we pointing out sin to make us feel better and more self-righteous? Are we pointing out sin for revenge? Maybe they hurt us years ago. Or are we pointing it out and confronting them out of a place of love, out of care and concern? Let me just say this, church. Our heart should always be one that has the good of the other as our chief concern. The good of the other. Not our own personal gain, not our own plans, but the good of the other. So this person that Paul is talking about, he, he or she seems to have gone through some disciplinary process And it sounds like he's been removed from the church. Look at verse six of chapter two. He says, Paul says, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. In other words, I would say that their removal, having him removed from their fellowship had the desired result, right? Which is repentance that leads to reconciliation. And so rather than excusing sin, that's what Corinth was doing, right? They were arrogant over this guy's sin. They've acknowledged it, and God's desire is that they would acknowledge their sin and turn from it. That's what repentance is. If you've never heard that word repentance, like he keeps using this R word. Like, what does it mean? It literally means to change your mind, to change around, start seeing things, not how you see them, but how God sees them. And that leads to a change of life. And so we need to deal with sin by taking it serious, to, by following the process that Jesus lays out, but then also just maintaining a heart of love. Amen? The second thing now that we learn from this portion of Scripture is how to respond to repentance. Okay? How are we to respond to repentance? If someone sins, maybe they sin against you, maybe just in general you find out about it, but they repent, how are we supposed to respond? That's a good question, especially in our culture. Because this is one of the, the problems in our cultures. We have a little thing that we've coined, cancel culture. Ever heard of it? You don't want to be on that list, right? Like, especially as a celebrity, right? Like your livelihood and income can be immediately just your whole life change. We've seen that with politicians and, and celebrities like almost every day of our lives. But in our society, our society, our culture doesn't know how to handle people who actually want to change. People that have made maybe poor decisions, maybe inexcusable decisions, but yet they've asked for forgiveness. They have changed their life, and it, but it holds on to that, right? And they get canceled. And so apparently here in Corinth, 
the church wanted to continue this disciplinary process where the guy who was in sin, like he wanted to repent, right? He's repenting. He wants to change. This is like cancel culture 2,000 years ago, okay? That's what we're witnessing here in Corinth. Look at verse 7. He says, so that on the contrary, you should rather, this is Paul, notice this word, forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8, wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But when one, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So when someone in our lives repents of their sins, that's great. Paul says that we're to respond with forgiveness, comfort, and love. Let's break those down one by one. How to respond to repentance? Number one, forgive. C.S. Lewis defines forgiveness in his book, The Weight of Glory, like this. Real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that is left over without any excuse. After all allowances have been made and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless, being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. In Matthew 18, as Jesus explained the process of church discipline, Peter, we love Peter, he asks all the questions that I think I would have asked, but uh, Peter turns to him and says this, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Which honestly, seven times sounds pretty generous. Am I right? Like seven times, like, dang, Peter, like you're being really generous there. Seven times is a lot, but Jesus said something even more profound and more amazing in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And Jesus's point is this, you and I are called to forgive people way more often than we're probably inclined to. Way more often than we're inclined to. And some of you, you hear this and you rightfully think, well, well, if you keep showing forgiveness to the same person, maybe for the same thing, doesn't that just enable them to just continue to do it and keep, you know, seeking forgiveness, repenting, all of those things over and over and over again, right? Some of us have asked that question. And maybe you're discerning that like in your life right now, maybe in a relationship. But can I just say this? That there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And we can talk about that for hours and hours and hours. There's layers upon layers. But in simplicity, you can forgive somebody in your life without being reconciled to them. Why? Why do I say that? Because reconciliation takes two people. To be reconciled, it takes two people. So you can forgive somebody, but it doesn't mean sometimes that the relationship goes back to the way it was, right? So you can forgive somebody and not put yourself like in those situations again where, where it enables the, the person to keep offending. Forgiving somebody means not holding their offense against them. So when we choose not to forgive, we give space for bitterness and resentment that ends up only harming ourselves. That's what we're choosing. When, when we choose not to extend forgiveness, we're allowing bitterness, opportunity for bitterness to grow in us. Someone, someone once said this, by not forgiving, 
I chain myself to a desire to get even, thereby losing my freedom. Let me just give you a second if, you, if some of you want to take photos of that uh, because I have another one coming up on the screen. I'll read it one more time. By not forgiving, I chain myself to a desire to get even, thereby losing my freedom. Another person said that resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it'll kill their enemies. You've heard that before? Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. So how do we respond when someone in our lives repent? The best way, the better way forward is forgiveness. Now you might be here and you might be listening to this and you're like, well, I want to forgive, Ryan. Like I, I want to move forward in my life, but you're still struggling. You don't know, like, is this even possible? Like, I feel like I'm at the same place again and again and again. Can I, just, can I just say this? The call today is to not try harder. I know you're shocked about that. Like, keep trying. Daniel Tiger, keep trying. You'll get better. Like, sorry. <laughs> you're like, who's Daniel Tiger? Don't worry about it. Okay. The call today is not to, to, to work harder at forgiving someone. Listen, you and I, we will never be able to truly forgive others until we finally come to that place ourselves where we realize that we need to be forgiven. That we need to be forgiven. You and I, we too have inexcusable sin in our lives. We've done things in our past. We're doing things probably in our present. We're definitely gonna do things in the future that are detestable and wrong and sinful in the sight of God. We offend God. We offend God. We hurt others, not all the time in big ways, but even in small ways. And God's righteous response to our sin is judgment. And rightfully so, because he's a holy God. He's righteous. And in that sense, God has to judge our sins. He has to. If he doesn't judge our sins, he's not just right? Our sins deserve death. God doesn't just give us a hall pass, right? Like if you go to school, you get a hall pass, or you get to go to the bathroom, right? And God's just like, oh yeah, here you go. Come back when you're ready. Like come back when you're done. No. Sin, listen to this, sin angers God. Sin angers God. So the question that we are left asking is how can God, a holy God, judge our sin without destroying us? Because <laughs> sin deserves death. How can God get rid of the sin in our lives without getting rid of you and me? Listen, the reality this morning, the good news this morning is that God is able to get rid of sin and not get rid of us by taking our sin upon himself. Amen? On the cross, Jesus wasn't murdered. There's a, there's a Christian song that says, God's murdered son. I disagree with that line. God wasn't murdered, but he offered, willingly offered his life as a substitute, as an offering in our place by taking our punishment so that we can receive forgiveness. Listen, the forgiveness that we receive in Jesus was costly, but this is the way forward. That's how you and I can forgive each other. That's how we can forgive our spouses, not by trying harder, Right, not by reading the next book on forgiveness, though that those can be helpful resources. No, how we can become a church of grace is by first embracing for ourselves the forgiveness and grace that we have freely been given by Jesus Christ. And then we extend that to others. 
And so when somebody, a believer, a spouse, repents of their sins, we can respond with forgiveness. And we'll even know that they might struggle again. They might struggle another time and another time in the same sin, and they're going to need your forgiveness again and again. They're going to need God's forgiveness again and again. But can I tell you what? Praise God that His forgiveness is infinite. Amen? That's good news. Because some of you this morning, you might feel like you're in a sin cycle. You ever felt like you're on a hamster wheel? And you're just like, man, I'm trying. I'm trying to like break these cycles, break these patterns. I'm doing the same thing over and over again. You might feel defeated by your sin. Listen, God's forgiveness will never run dry because he forgives you. He already nailed your sins to the cross. You are forgiven. That is good news. That is the assurance. Not like you will be forgiven. No, you are forgiven today for past sins, present sins, future sins, all washed clean by the blood of Jesus on Calvary. So your responsibility is not to make penance for your sin. It's not try harder. It's just to acknowledge it and look to the Savior who dealt with it. To look to the, so we take sin serious, not to condemn us, not to shame us. We take sin serious because God's forgiveness is serious. God's forgiveness is serious. I just want to say this as a side note. Can we, as a church, not just as Calvary, but just as, a, as the church, get rid of this stigma, this weird stigma around repentance? Some of us, we struggle with admitting our flaws. We, we struggle with admitting our weaknesses, right? So many in the church, we might, you, you might feel like, oh, repentance, it makes me feel uncomfortable. Listen, repentance is one of, if not the most beautiful thing that the Lord offers us. Because it's through repentance that we are forgiven and experience healing. Healing. I was talking to a young guy a couple weeks ago, and he's just like, man, he was struggling with sin, struggling with sin. He was trying to overcome sin, and it wasn't until the moment that he confessed his sin. He's like, Ryan, it was like a, a weight lifted off my shoulder just a weight lifted off my shoulder. So I just pray that as a church, we can get rid of this weird stigma. It's like, oh, repentance. Like, oh, that's like humiliation. No, that's embracing our weakness so that we can experience God's grace. And, 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 for, and repentance, listen, is not something that just happens on occasion. Repentance isn't just something that we did on the day that we met Jesus for the first time. Repentance is honestly, and maybe you're not like me, but maybe you like perfect, I don't know. But like, I, I need repentance on a daily basis, a daily basis. And I pray that we become a people that are free to admit our sins and our failures as they happen because they provide opportunities for us to experience God's grace. I think of that passage in, in James where, where James says, therefore confess your sin to one another. Why? And pray for one another so that you may be healed. And so the only way we can create this kind of church where repentance can happen freely is if we take forgiveness of God seriously. So when people repent, we respond with forgiveness. And I promise I won't take as much time with comfort and love. But that is the second one. How to respond to repentance with comfort. Paul says in verse 7, you comfort him. And that word comfort in the Greek literally means encouragement. I love that. Because sometimes we read comfort like, oh, what are we supposed to say? Like, 
you know, like, oh, like, your sin wasn't that bad. Like, you comfort them. No, no, no. Encourage him. Point out. So if someone sins and they repent, you forgive, and then you point out God's grace in their life. Like, listen, God forgives you. God's grace and his mercies are new every morning for you. Like, you just encourage that person. And why does Paul say that? We don't just respond with forgiveness, but also encouragement. He says, so that the person might not be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Build them up. Remember, you're, you're a child that's loved by God, chosen by God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, like all of those things. That's the goal, right? It's to encourage them, not so that they just drown in sorrow and shame and sulk in their, 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 their past sins. Forgiveness and, again, encouragement should lift up the weary soul. I think the last thing I, I want to say is that how to respond to repentance is by love. Paul says, with a reaffirmation of your love for him. We don't treat them like an outsider anymore, right? We say, come on back. Listen, being sinless, let me just say this, being sinless isn't what made you a part of the family in the first place, okay? Repenting and trusting in the Savior dead. And so when someone repents of their sin, we should be like, praise the Lord, come back in. So we've learned how to, we're supposed to handle sin, we learn how we're supposed to respond to repentance. And the last thing that I want to look at in verse 11 is the danger if we don't. It says, so that, we do all of this, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Church, I don't know if you know this, but we have an enemy. We have an enemy. Satan wants us to sin because he knows that our sin has long-reaching arms, and it affects people, and it ruins relationships. Satan doesn't want us to be a church of grace. Satan doesn't want us to be a church that's quick to forgive. He doesn't want you to be someone full of grace and quick to forgive. You know, if we refuse to take sin seriously or if we refuse to take forgiveness seriously, Paul is saying we're being played by Satan himself. But when we deal with our sin and show forgiveness, we're walking in the ways of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. And he forgave all of your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And he has taken it, uh, taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's good news. Thank Jesus took our sin seriously. So serious that he died on the cross so that we can be forgiven, so that our sins, though they were scarlet, could be made white as snow. But if, but if Satan can keep you in sin, he will. Satan doesn't want us to take our sin serious. He wants you to justify your sin. And Paul is saying, hey, when we refuse to deal with sin, we're being played by Satan. Because Satan doesn't want you to realize the depths of forgiveness that Christ has for you. Now, this point, or this message today, isn't for us to become a church of sin sniffers. Okay, when we come to church, the call today is not to just start walking the lobby. I'm going to grab coffee, but I'm like listening to their conversation. They're here like, are they gossiping? Is that gossip? Like, 
It's like, it's not like he noses up and we're just like, is there sin over there? Is there sin? Is there sin? Is there sin? Is there... Do I smell sin? Do I smell... No, no. Look, can I just say this? Being a sin sniffer, being a gossip, all of those things, not of the spirit. It's not biblical. It's wrong. And if you do it, stop. What we need to be is a church where we can safely confess our sins. There is no greater way of becoming a church of grace than by extending the same grace that Jesus has shown you and shown me. So we don't need to ignore our sin. We don't need to justify our sin. The good news is we can just confess our sins, knowing that Jesus already took them upon himself, your past sin, and not just your past sin, your present sin and your future sin by nailing them to the cross. And your sin no longer has power over you in the name of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. You are a child of God. And it's because God is quick to shower his forgiveness upon you. When you confess your sin, you have the opportunity and I have the opportunity and the reality to be forgiven every single time because we are forgiven. We are forgiven. So let's be a church that we confess our sin so that we can just re be reminded of the forgiveness that is already ours in Christ. Why would we allow Satan to rob us of that joy? Satan wants to keep you in your shame. Man, can I just say this? I, this is the part of the message that I'm like, I fall apart on my notes. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna start with C.S. Lewis and then we'll go from there, see what God does. C.S. Lewis wrote this. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Can I just say this, that Satan wants our church to be a place where we don't confess sin, a place where we grow self-righteous, pharisaical, whatever you want to call it, where we pretend that we don't struggle, so we come to church and we do this. We smile and we pretend. And you know what that does? It's sad for your life, but do you know what that does? That it, someone's gonna watch you and it's gonna force them to put a mask on because they don't feel safe. Sharing and expressing weakness failure, flaws, because, because they're afraid of your judgment and my judgment. So can we all, this is a church opportunity. And I'm not saying there's major problems here. I'm just saying, I know, I, know, I know the things in my life that, man, it's easy to put a mask on and just to say everything is fine because I'm worried. Like, man, if you really knew the truth about me or if I really knew the truth about you, listen, God knows the truth about all of us. And he loves us still. And that's why he went to the cross. So that we could be forgiven. So if you don't hear anything today, but you hear this, you are forgiven and loved by God. And his grace never runs dry. So let's stop pretending. I'm not saying there's, there's wisdom in what we share and who we share it with, right? Let's stop pretending. Let's be real. Real about our sin, but real about the grace of God. And I think when we do that, this becomes a real thing. <laughs> the joy of the Lord becomes real and not fake. The joy of the Lord would be our strength. Thanks for listening. 
If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For service times, location, or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together. 